Our sermon this morning comes from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Aren't you glad to be here this morning? What a glorious day. Hear now the Word of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day in which we can gather shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters in Christ because we love you and we want to hear from you and we want to praise you and we want to call out your name. And so now we come before your word and ask that you would, by your spirit, speak to our hearts, that it would please you to give us eyes to see your majesty, ears to hear your word, and a heart to rejoice in our God. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. On March 11th in 1898, a teenager set sail from Russia by the name of Peter Dineka. He was headed for Nova Scotia, Canada. Peter would go on there in Nova Scotia to become an evangelist for our God and a very fruitful one in his day. But it's during the voyage from Russia to Canada which God taught him a lesson. You see, Peter's family was very poor. They saved up for months in order to purchase this ticket for his voyage from uh, across the Atlantic Ocean. And they gathered all the food they could for Peter for this long trip mostly just hard bread and garlic, which would sustain him until he crossed the sea. Well, every day Peter would gaze longingly through the windows into the ship's dining room. There the wealthy ate their extravagant food, and oh, how he longed just for a bite. How he longed to walk in and join them for that meal. Well, halfway through the trip, the sailors took notice of Peter's predicament, and they made an arrangement with him. They asked Peter if he would do their work on the ship, that they would give him meals to eat. Well, Peter was delighted in this. And he would work hard throughout the day simply to go into the back of that kitchen and eat a meal as promised. He would do this every day for the rest of the voyage until the last day. When he discovered that the three meals a day in which he saw people feasting on were all included in his ticket. It was all available to him. And Paul, here in Romans chapter 8, I think is doing two things. We've now, I think, spent, this will be our ninth week in this great and glorious chapter. And he seems to be doing two things for us. One thing is he seems to be doing is showing us our destination. You have no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Your bodies will be raised, though they are are dying today, one day they will be raised. You are an heir, in fact, a co-heir with Christ. In fact, this, this whole corrupt world one day will be renewed and redeemed. In fact, you are headed to the conformity of Jesus Christ. You shall be glorified. And he keeps pointing our eyes upon the destination to which we go. 
And yet at the same time, it seems that he is unfolding for us the benefits, the blessings that we help on this voyage. His focus is not simply on where we're headed, but on the divine help that we have on our trip to get there. And so he tells us we've been freed from the flesh. He explains that God has put his spirit in your heart that you may put to death the deeds of the body. He tells us, in fact, his spirit is praying for us on our behalf. He even goes so far to say that he is working all things together for your good. Well, the passage that we come to study, these last fact, last nine verses in Romans chapter 8 are no different. Paul is doing two things. He's pointing us where we're headed and showing us the help that we have on the voyage to get there. I think Christians need this. I think we need both. I think we, we need to know where we're going. Many Christians um, uh, know that they have this ticket. They know where they're headed. But some are not sure whether they'll make it. There are some who think that they may get thrown overboard or the ship will turn around or the ship will sink or maybe they themselves will jump over the ship. And so we need that blessed assurance that we sing of. Paul is helping us with that this morning. But we also need to know the privileges that we have on this trip. Like Peter, many Christians, I think, neglect the divine help that comes with this ticket, this, this all-expenses-paid ticket that Christ has paid for us. And so he shows us what God is doing for us. He points out the blessings that we have in Christ during this trip. And so let's consider our destination this morning in these verses. Let's consider the help that we have upon that voyage. You see, Paul begins this passage in verse 31 by saying, what then shall we say to these things? In other words, he says, in light of what we've already considered, what is there left to say? What, what can we add to this? It's almost as if Paul pauses in writing out this glorious uh, book of Romans, perhaps considering primarily the eighth chapter, and he looks back and pauses, and he's almost speechless. At least he's searching for something more to add. And all he can do is, is ask these rather defiant questions. He asked five of them to end Romans chapter 8. Five great defiant questions. It's almost as if the apostle is looking for someone, anyone, anyone wherever they may be to come and to deny him the truths in which he has been unfolding for us. I appreciate what John Stott says in commentating on these passages. He announces that he hurls his questions into space in a spirit of bold defiance. He challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, on earth or hell, to deny the truth which they contain. But there is no answer. And so we come to study these questions. I've studied this passage over the last couple of weeks, and it almost seems to me as if the the apostle is trash-talking. It almost seems like we have here, uh, Paul is taunting his enemies. I believe what lies before us is this divinely inspired, inerrant, infallible trash talking. You think you could do anything against me? You think you can charge me? You think you could accuse me? Have you seen my dad? The apostle wonders. Have you considered my older brother? He asks. And he calls for his enemies to assault him. He calls for them to deny that which he proclaims. 
And so let's consider this great defiance of the apostle this morning, and perhaps it can become ours as well. My hope for you, Christian, is that for these truths, indeed for all of Romans chapter 8, for that matter, would create a new person in you. My hope is that God would be doing heart surgery in you this morning and has for the previous weeks we have studied this, that he may permanently plant joy in your heart regardless of what befalls you, that you may know where you are headed and know the help in which you have on your voyage there. So five questions he gives for us. We'll consider the last in the coming weeks, but today let's take the first four. We'll see, or at least I'll outline this text in this way. Number one, God our defender. Number two, God our provider. Number three, God our acquitter. And number four, Christ our intercessor. And so first of all, consider with me from verse 31, God our defender. The apostle simply asks his first question here, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now the implication is that the apostle expects no one can be against us, which seems somewhat silly, doesn't it, in light of reality? I mean, it doesn't seem like there are many people against Christians. Don't, don't you think if we actually said, who can be against us? Well, isn't there a barrage of replies? Seems like the world's against us, does it not? It seems like governments around this world are against us. It seems like our culture's against us. It seems like there are other religions against us. Certainly the devil's against us. What does he mean? Who can be against us? In fact, he's not ignorant of all these opponents. Notice verse 35. He mentions tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. All these things oppose us. All these things are against us. Paul's aware of this. In fact, you even know verse 36. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, he says. Those who kill us certainly are against us. In fact, Jesus himself knew this. In Luke 21, he announced, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. And some of you, they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair on your head will perish. Isn't that interesting? Some of you, they will kill, but not a hair on your head will perish. You see, what Jesus is teaching in the apostle echoes is that, yes, we have many opponents. Yes, they they will attack us in all sorts of ways, but none of them will be successful. None of them will be able to defeat us. And so who can be successfully against us is what he is calling out for. I appreciate what the church father Chrysostom said when he was threatened by the Roman Empire with banishment if he remained a Christian. Chrysostom replied, Thou cannot banish me from this world. It is my father's house. But I will slay you, said the emperor. Nay, thou cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away your treasures. Nay, thou cannot, for my treasure is in heaven, and my heart is there also. But I will drive you away from man, and you shall have not friend left. Chrysostom replied, Nay, thou cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom thou cannot separate me. I defy thee, emperor, for there is nothing that thou can do to hurt me. If God is for us, who cares who's against us? What does it matter? God is for us. Who can successfully be against us? Friends, you hear that? God is for you. What great news this is. Perhaps this could hold hands with Romans 8.1 when we heard there is no condemnation for us. 
There are no condemnation. God is not opposed to me in verse 1. In verse 31, God is now for me, linking arms as they lead me out into life, knowing that God is on my side. I appreciate what the great Presbyterian preacher James Boyce once said in commentating on this passage. He said, it is as if Paul is challenging us to place all the possible enemies we can think of on one half of an old-fashioned balance scale as if we were weighing peanuts. Then, when we have all the peanuts assembled on the scale, he throws an anvil onto the other side of the balance. That side comes crashing down and the peanuts are scattered. Who can stand against God, he asks. The answer is nobody. Nothing can defeat us if the almighty God of the universe is on our side. So I ask you this morning, who is against you? Seriously, what what opposition do you face? At work? At home? At school? Certainly there are some who oppose you. You find them on the television? You find them all around. I want you to understand, friend, if you are in Christ, they will not succeed. No matter how great the opposition seems against you, they will not win. All foes are simply defeated foes used by God for our good. I believe this ought to give you great freedom and confidence. I I believe this ought to lift your head. I believe it ought to put steel in your spine. I believe it ought to put a spring in your step and joy in your heart that God is for you. In fact, you may want to even add your name there. God is for Stephen Karn. What great and glorious truth. I cannot lose. I cannot be defeated for God is for me. So therefore, do not fear what God calls you to do. Do not fear where he leads you. Though it may be hard or uncertain, you cannot be defeated. Do not fear what your neighbors or your coworker or your spouse or your, your schoolmates will think when you share the gospel with them. Do not fear when God leads you to sacrifice financially for some great gospel cause. God is for you. You cannot be defeated. Maybe you ought to take that phrase home today. Maybe for some of you, you need to hear simply this. God is for you. Maybe God will plant that in your heart today and never take it from you. And that will be a refrain that you will hear from this time forward. God is for me. And when the world comes against you, you will hear the Spirit call out from Romans 8.31. God is for me. Of course, he's not for everyone, is he? As great and glorious as the word God is for me, how terrifying is the phrase God is against me. Friends, God is against those who have yet to bow their knee to Christ. He is against those who reject his son. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. The news I'm afraid I have for you is that God is not for you, but he is against you. I think there are no more terrifying words. The almighty God of the universe against me. But he doesn't have to be. If you will simply lay down your arms of rebellion, place your faith in Jesus Christ. Give him your life. He will accept you into his family, into his kingdom, and he will forevermore be for you. The Bible says if you confess through their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What a glorious transformation could take place in your life today forevermore, going from enmity and warfare with God to actually having God forever for you. Won't you bow your knee to Jesus and receive your God? God, our defender. But secondly, consider... God, our provider. Verse 32. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? You see here that Jesus is referred to as God's own son. Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God, his own son. We saw this earlier in Romans 8 and verse 3. And the Bible says that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son. And so Jesus is this eternal son of God who God sent to this world. And like any good father, he loves his son. And his baptism, God spoke from heaven and said, you are my beloved son. He said to Jesus, I love you, son. I am pleased with you. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that you have been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son, God's loved Son. Jesus himself, when telling the parable of the tenants, said that all the tenants killed all the master's servants, but then he added, he still had one other, a beloved Son. He had one Son. That's all he had. And he loved him. And he sent him. I have three sons. I praise the Lord for each one of them. There's something unique I've discovered about a father's love for his sons. There's unique in my father's love for his daughters and his wife and his church and, and, and a man's love for his parents. But friends, there's something special about a father's love for his son. I just love the word son. I just love to come up to my boys and say, I love you, son. I think there's weight in that term. You are my son, and I love you. Well, God loves his son. In fact, the barrier between you and I and salvation at one time was the insurmountable mountain of God's love for Jesus. Right? If we're over here and salvation is over here, you know what stood between us? This indomitable mountain peak of God's love for Christ. God's love for his own son. I mean, would you give up your son for your neighbors? If you could save your neighbor's life by giving up the life of your son, would you? I mean, the answer is easy for me, no. I'd give you my time, I would sacrifice for you, I, I would give you my money, but there's a limit to how much I would pay, I wouldn't give up my son. What about for your enemies? Would you give up the life of your son for your enemies? Would God? Would, would God, who loved and delighted Jesus Christ, give him up? To be betrayed and slandered and mocked and beaten and flogged and spit upon and nailed to the cross like some animal to be butchered. Would he do that? Would he put his son on the cross? Yes. Yes. Yes, he would. And yes, he did. In fact, we see this here in verse 32. He, he tells it us twice. He says, first of all, negatively, he did not spare his own son. Then he says, positively, he gave him up. He did not spare his own son, the son of his love, for dishonor and torture. He gave up his son, the son of his love, to pain and death. It was the butchery of the greatest person ever to live, full of love and compassion and power and grace and wisdom. After 20 years of following Christ, I still don't get it. I know some of you have great theological questions. Here's my question. How could God put his son on the cross for the likes of me and for the likes of you? That's the question I don't get. How could he do it? But he did do it. In fact, it's God who put him to death, isn't it? I mean, who killed Jesus? Judas? 
The Jews, Pilate, soldiers? Well, they all had a role in it, certainly. But friends, I think Scripture teaches that in these people, through these people, it was God who was putting to death his son. The great Puritan Octavius Winslow says, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. This is what we see here. Look in verse 32. Who's doing it? He, he being God, did not spare his own son. He gave him up. I don't know if the choir sang these verses, but they sang from us from Isaiah 53, in which we read, We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God who put his son to death. In fact, this phrase, did not spare him, is the exact same phrase from the Greek Old Testament in referring to Abraham's almost sacrifice of Isaac. Remember when when Abraham bound his son Isaac upon that altar, the scripture tells us that God spoke from heaven and said, because you did not spare your son, your only son, Abraham did not spare him because he lifted the knife above his son's chest. But there was a ram in the thicket, a substitute. Well, God did not spare his own son as he lifted the knife over his chest because he was the ram. He was the substitute. Why? Friends, why would God kill his own son? Why would he not spare him? So he could spare you. And so he could spare me. So he could spare us. Is this not what it says? He gave up his own son for us all. It was for us. For our sin and rebellion brought the wrath of God, the justice of God upon us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus Christ took all our punishment and debt and guilt and corruption and depravity and rebellion upon him. God gave him up for us. And if God gave up Jesus for us, if he delivered up Jesus for us, what then will he withhold from you? What will he say? No, that's too expensive. What will he say? No, that costs too much. I'm not going to give that to you. Sorry, you've just asked for too much. It's, look at the logic of this earth. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, for us all, Here's the question. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? Right? If you give the great thing, of course you'll give the lesser thing. Jesus taught this in Matthew 6 when he said, If God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Right? God is willing to clothe grass, which is the unlikely thing. It's, it's here for a day, then thrown into the oven. How much more, therefore, Will he clothe you? If he does the hard thing, the costly thing, then it's a guarantee he'll do the, the cheap thing, the easy thing. Well, he's done the hard thing. He's done the improbable thing, the costly thing. He delivered up the son of his own love, who did not deserve to be murdered. He deserved to be worshipped by everything in this all of creation. And he did that for us. That's the guarantee, therefore, that we will have from God everything we need because everything else is easy. Creating the world... Easy. Ruling the world from the greatest king to the smallest sparrow. Easy. Raising your body from the dead, giving you eternal life, calling you to be an heir of all creation. That's easy in comparison to putting his son on the cross. He handed over his own son. 
He will therefore give you all things graciously. It's easy. Of course, the question then arises, right? I don't feel like I have all things. There's plenty of things I want that I don't feel like I have. What do you mean, Pastor? That He'll give you all things. I could use some health. I could maybe use some believing children. That would be a blessing. In fact, I'd like my spouse back. Right? There are many things that you want, aren't there? That does not seem like God is willing to give. Well, friends, we need to remember the context in which God is teaching us this phrase. I think this is all rooted back in verse 28 when we saw that he works all things together for our good. What's our good? Verse 29 is to conform us into the image of Christ. He's going to give you everything that you need to make you like Jesus. He's our Father. He knows what is best for us. His goal for you is to restore the image of God in you that has been marred by sin and rebellion. His goal for you is to put the likeness of Christ, to make you like Jesus. And He is going to give you everything you need to become like that. And so every time you're discouraged or there's a setback or there's some sickness or some sin comes upon you, know that God has stripped it of its destructive power in your life and is using it to make you more like Jesus. He'll give you everything that you need to become like Christ. I have a, we have a brother in a Buddhist country who is committed to taking the gospel to every Buddhist monastery in that country. A number of years ago, he was offered a ride by a woman in his travels, and she invited him over for a meal. And after the meal, he showed her the Jesus film, and she invited all her neighbors to see the Jesus film. And, and after they all watched the Jesus film, one of the neighbors went home and called the police. Our brother in Christ was arrested and put in prison for seven months. When he got out of prison, this is what he said. You'll never guess what God did. He allowed us to go to prison and to bring the gospel to prisoners. We shared the gospel with 180 prisoners, led 20 to faith in Jesus Christ, and baptized eight in prison. One of the converted men who came to Christ has a life sentence in prison. He's already led 11 other people to Jesus Christ. Our brother has been arrested again. He's witnessed again, this time even to the warden, and he has declared triumphantly, God has given me a prison ministry. God will give you all things that you need to become like Christ. The question is, do we want what God wants for us? Do we, is that our goal? Oh, friends, there is more joy in becoming like Jesus than any other thing I could think of. All things. I think you need to fight to believe this. If you want to th- thrive as a Christian, in fact, you want to even survive as a Christian, you need to remind yourself that God, because he has given up Jesus, you got to take this divine heavenly logic. Because God gave up Jesus, the son of his love, he will therefore give me all things. You need to remind yourself of this. It's when you have pain and setbacks and confusion and pressure and you're overwhelmed with life and temptations besiege you. That God gave up Jesus for me. How will he not with him graciously give me all things? When you lose your job and you lose your health and you lose your spouse, you need to remind yourself that God has given up Jesus for me. How will he not therefore give me all things? Friends, it's good to to know that God loves you. It's good to know that he's working all things together for your good. But when trouble hits you, I think you need more than just this saying. I think you need this, this heavenly, divine argument. This is fact. This is evidence. This is logic. He gave up Jesus for you. He's not going to withhold anything from you. It makes no sense. Everything you need is, is not only easy, but it is guaranteed. So when your car is broken, will you not remind yourself he gave up Jesus for me? How will he not with him graciously give me all things? 
When you lose your job, will you not remind yourself, He gave it Jesus for me. How will He not graciously give me all things? When you're afraid to witness, when you're afraid of the call of God to the mission field, will you not remind yourself, He gave Jesus up for me. How will He not graciously give me all things? You see, God is our provider. We also see, thirdly, God is our acquitter. Note verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You notice the future tense. Who shall bring any charge? I believe he's referring to the last judgment. Who will accuse you on that day? Who's going to bring accusation against you? Of course, we can think of many people who would accuse us. Maybe the devil, who the Bible says is the accuser of the brethren, night and day. He may accuse me. Devil, the ultimate hypocrite, who sinned more than anybody and yet has the audacity to accuse us of sin. He stands before God and says, do you see what Sally said? Do you see what Harry did? you see what these people thought? And I can't believe they're yours. you really want them following you? He's up there accusing us, perhaps even now. Of course, he's not alone. There's other people that may accuse you. Your enemies might accuse you. Your spouse might accuse you. Your coworker might accuse you. Maybe even your own conscience might accuse you. Who, he says, will bring a charge against God's elect? You notice his answer is not to list out all these accusers, but his answer is, it is God who justifies. Once again, who cares who accuses me? Who accuses me? I don't care. Let the world accuse me. It is God who justifies me. God does this work. It may be the entire world, but none can do it successfully. In fact, you notice the focus here is not simply on the act of justification, but it's on the God who does the justification. He doesn't say, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? We're justified, though he could. You see how he phrases this? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The focus is on God, more than the act of justification. He wants us to drill down, it's God who does this. I think it's incredibly important, especially in the day we live, because you have a court verdict, and what's the next thing that's going to happen? Well, it gets appealed. Right? There's some higher court. There's some other judge. There's some error in the trial. There's some new evidence. And you keep going higher and higher. And judges get overruled all the time. But notice that you haven't been justified by some human. It's not a man who justified you. It's not an apostle or prophet who justified you. It's not even an angel who justified you. It is God who justifies you. I'll tell you, friends, there is no court higher than heaven. There is no judge above God. God is the one who acquits. There is no appeal, therefore. There is no mistrial. He is the Supreme Court. His gavel has fallen. And He has rendered the final irrevocable verdict. No condemnation. It's over. Case dismissed. It is God who does this work. And so all the accusations just bounce off us like arrows off a shield. It doesn't doesn't matter who who accuses us. In fact, I love the, the, the passage in the book of Zechariah. Little prophet. Zechariah tells us a vision that he had of Joshua, the high priest of that day, standing before Satan, and I believe before Jesus. You have to read it in Zechariah chapter 3. And Satan is up there in heaven, and there's Joshua, the high priest, and he's being accused by the devil. He's going on and on. He says, I can't believe you would have this guy to be your high priest. Look, look at him. And he has grounds for accusation because Joshua, the high priest, is clothed in filthy garments. It's a reflection of the sin in his life. You know what God says to the devil? The Lord rebuke you, Satan. 
He goes on and says, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with white garments. You see that picture of justification. I will take your sin from you, and I will clothe you with my righteousness. This is what God has done for us. So it matters not who accuses us, even if the devil accuses us himself. I hope you understand the power in this. I hope you understand the joy in this truth. You who live in a home, or perhaps grew up in a home, and all you heard was accusation after accusation after accusation. You lived in an environment of an accuser. There was no praise for you. Will you not hear this this verse here? Who is it that brings a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I think there's power for you who constantly assault yourself with your own condemnation. You're bringing yourself down with your own burdens. Will you not hear the power here? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Do you see the power in this? You who accuse others. You who live a life of murmuring and gossip and criticizing others. You who are never willing to praise others. Will you see what Scripture says this morning? Who is it? That shall accuse who shall bring a charge against God's elect. I believe God intends to overcome these accusations. I believe God intends to plant this joy, this freedom in your heart today, knowing that God is the one who justifies. So you can say, you can shut your ears to these charges. It is God who justifies you. You can soften your heart to your own failings. It is God who justifies you. And you can close, close your mouth to self-absorbed whining. It is God who justifies. This is His work. You see, there's freedom here. There's great freedom to feel the force of this. No accusation against me will stand. I've been justified by God. One has said, breathe the clean, clear morning air of heaven's supreme court. It has ruled. You are justified. You are acquitted. Well, lastly, consider with me Christ, our intercessor. You notice verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So he asks, who's to condemn? This is slightly different than Romans 8.1 where we saw there was no condemnation. Here we see there are no condemners. Mouths will be shut closed because of what Jesus has done. Once again, you notice the focus of this answer is not so much on the work of Jesus, but on the person of Jesus. It does not say Jesus died as an answer. It says Christ Jesus is the one who died. Christ Jesus is the one who was raised. Christ Jesus is the one who's exalted. And Christ Jesus is the one who intercedes. And so I encourage you to focus in on Christ. Look at the four things briefly he has done for us. We see, first of all, Christ Jesus is the one who died. This was his plan. This is why he came. He said in Mark 10, verse 45, the Son of Man has come to give his life as a ransom for many. He died for our sin. Our sin was condemned in Christ. And so to condemn you is to say that Christ's death is worthless. It has no value. He says, who shall condemn you? Jesus died to bear that condemnation. And therefore, there is no condemner. Secondly, he says, Christ Jesus is the one who was raised. You know, Jesus Christ said over and over again that he's coming to die for our sin. That's a pretty uh, audacious claim, isn't it? I'm going to die, but it will be for your sin. 
You know, tens of thousands of people who died on the cross. But what's, why, why do we believe in Jesus' death was so special? Why do we believe it actually accomplished what he said it would accomplish? Well, because three days later, he got up from the dead. And he walked out of that tomb, just as he said he would. And this is God's giant stamp of approval saying, the condemnation has been exhausted in the death of Christ. The work is now finished. It's over. In fact, you notice the passive verb here in verse 34. It says, more than that, who was raised. Someone did the raising of Jesus. It's God who did that. The resurrection is God saying, all the condemnation has been absorbed in Christ. It has accomplished what he said it would. You see, the resurrection doesn't add anything to the cross. It's not like we're saved because the cross does 50% of the work and the resurrection does the other 50%. No, the cross does 100% of the, the wrath-absorbing work. The resurrection validates the work of the cross. We know it's to be true. So who then can condemn you? Christ Jesus died for you, and God declared that it worked by raising him from the dead. But more than that, you notice thirdly that Christ Jesus is the one who is at the right hand of God. This tells us that Jesus has all authority and power and dominion. The Bible tells us in Psalm 110, which I believe this passage is referring to, sit at my right hand, God says to the Messiah, until I make your enemies a footstool. Stephen saw him standing at the right hand of God. John saw him at the right hand of God throughout the book of Revelation. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, all rule and authority and power and dominion has been given to Christ. It's his. He's at the right hand of God. So I wonder who's going to challenge his rule. Who's going to stand up to Jesus and challenge his verdict? He rules over all things. He stands at the right hand of God. So who then can condemn you if Christ has given his verdict? Well, you notice, fourthly, as we've considered a number of weeks ago, Christ Jesus is the one interceding for us. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ. And so there from the right hand of God, he not only rules, but he intercedes to our Father, claiming that you are his and that you belong to him through his blood. Do you see Jesus this morning? Do you see the work that he has done? Friends, you don't need to be timid. You don't need to be filled with fear. Let the condemners speak. Let let the devil accuse. And then you can tell him on the authority of God's word to shut his mouth. I appreciate what one pastor said in light of Romans 8 and verse 34. Get in Satan's face and state your case with authority. Christ died for me, Christ was raised from the dead for me, and Christ is at the all-seeing, all-powerful, all-ruling right hand of God for me, and Christ is interceding for me with the Almighty God, therefore be gone, you little created, dependent, defeated devil. Christ, our intercessor. So I ask you, what shall we say to these things? The apostle wants to know, Verse 31, what, what can we say? 
What do we say in light of these things? Verse 28, all things work for your good. Verse 29, he one day will make you like Jesus. Verse 30, your destination is secured and it is glory. Verse 31, God is for you. Who cares who against you? Verse 32, he gave up his own son for you. How will he not graciously give you all things? Verse 33, who can accuse you? God has justified you. Verse 34, Christ died, rose, exalted, and intercedes for you. Who then can condemn you? What shall you say to these things? How about thank you, God? I love you, God. How about we praise Him? Maybe this week, maybe this afternoon, by way of application, you can sit down and figure out something to say to God based upon these truths that He has given you this morning. Maybe you can speak to Him a word of praise, a word of thanks, asking that they would take root in your life. In fact, in a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table and Jesus will meet us here at this table as He serves us. And we're going to be reminded of the death of Jesus Christ, which we consider, and, his, and uh, the spilled blood and His broken body, which all these things are secured for us through His death. And I wonder why you hold the, the elements in your hand, while you wait for the bread to be passed out, and you sit there in quiet reflection. I wonder if there's one of these truths that God would let your soul feast on this morning. I wonder if even now you could think about what it is you just want to silently meditate on and give thanks for. Perhaps it's the fact that there's no one who opposes you. Or perhaps it's the fact that God is going to rule for in your life to give you everything you need. Or maybe you need to think about that all the accusations that you've heard do not matter. Or perhaps you could consider there is no condemner against you. I'm hoping you'd feast on these gospel truths. We're not going to eat much physically, as you know, but I pray that your soul would feast bountifully during this Lord's Supper. Would you even now pick out one of these points and say, I want to focus in on this. God, help me to cherish you because of this truth. As we come to this meal, I do want to let you know that this meal is for Christians. If you are not a Christian, we're happy that you are here this morning, but we ask that when the plates are passed, you would just let them pass by you. This is a meal that Christians participate in as we celebrate the work of Jesus Christ for us in his death through his spilled blood and broken body. And as always, we want to give each of you an opportunity to consider and to reflect on your own heart. Perhaps there's some sin this week which you are living in that you need to surrender over to the Lord before you come and to rejoice in his sacrifice for you. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, who therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So in a moment, I'll give you an opportunity to silently examine your heart, asking the Spirit to search you. I'll close our time in prayer. And may you turn over what God leads upon you. May you repent this morning. Of course, know this, Christian, this is not a meal for perfect people. This is a meal for sinful people. Do not misunderstand me that you must be perfectly repentant to eat this meal. This is a meal to celebrate grace for sinners. And yet we do not want to do it lightheartedly. And so will you pray and ask God to do a good work in your heart even now? Let us pray together.
Father, we thank you for the precious, glorious truth. The scripture tells us if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Will you please, by your Spirit, help us to confess our sin? Place sorrow in our heart. Place repentance in our heart and a great love for you. We thank you for forgiveness purchased for us through Jesus' death. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The deacons will now come forward as we prepare.